says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And Father, we just humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, as always, as we continue now in our worship, through submitting our heart, soul, and mind to the word of God that you've written and recorded for us. So help us now, Lord, prepare each one of us accordingly, we ask this day, by your spirit and as always we ask that it would be your spirit and his ministry that's speaking directly and personally to each and every one of our hearts through the word of god so bless your word we ask now expectantly in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know sometimes in life we have to kind of learn how to work through some things from time to time But I want you to always remember and be aware that even though we have to learn how to work through some things, it is equally true that whatever is happening in life, that the Lord is working through those things. You understand what I mean by that? We have to work through things circumstantially, but when those things are happening, the Lord is actually working through those things, through those circumstances, through those situations in our lives. And we see both of those realities happening in our passage today. You notice chapter 18 opens with these three words, after these things. Again, we're following the record here of the second missionary journey of Paul the Apostle and his activities as he travels around to different regions and cities, sharing the gospel where it's never been heard before. Imagine that in a city. Preaching and teaching the word of God to the people there, establishing new churches. In fact, Acts chapter 18 again records for us how the church at Corinth was planted or established. We have First and Second Corinthians in our Bible written to a church that Paul establishes and plants here in this chapter. Now, Paul's just spent some time in chapter 17 in Athens trying to reach a very intellectual community, a group of deep thinkers and philosophers to explain that the one true God 
is uh, the creator God and he must be worshipped properly through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who they would one day be accountable to. And we saw in Acts chapter 17, though a few responded in faith and became followers of Jesus, most of that group mocked Paul's message. Many of them just put off responding in any way and kind of delayed responding to God. And it appears in Athens that though the truth and the gospel was spoken and taught in that city, that apparently it seems a church was not established in Athens. Again, Paul made a good effort there. He preached the gospel. He taught the word of God. But it seems from what we have evidence of that that did not result in a church plant at least through that ministry of the time in which he was there. But Acts 18 brings Paul to a new community now. That's why it says that after these things, Paul then departed, verse 1, from Athens and went to Corinth. So sensing that his time of ministry and effort there was complete in Athens, he now travels 50 miles west and it says in verse 1, he goes over to the city of Corinth. Now Corinth was the capital city of a region called Achaia, and we know as well, Corinth from history was the location of the Ithmian sports games that were held every two years. Uh, they were second in popularity only to what we know still today as the Olympic Games that happen every four years. Corinth was a very popular city in the Roman Empire, became a major commercial center that sat right in between two famous shipping harbors, which as the result of that caused a lot of merchants and travelers and visitors to pass through the city of Corinth, as well as a lot of goods and revenue and wealth to pass through and be utilized in the city of Corinth. Corinth also became a city that was famous in its day for its immoral and sinful behaviors within its society. You might say Corinth would have had the title the ancient sin city because that's what Corinth would have been labeled as, Sin City in their day. We know the city of Corinth developed a reputation for being a major party city with loose living. And it was characterized by things like drunkenness and sexual immorality and wild forms of entertainment. And as the result of that, on top of those things, the sexual immorality became more prevalent and really uh, kind of just spread throughout the community all the more because they also had there the great amount of worship practices to the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, and the goddess Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And as a result of the practices of that worship, the city was filled with what were called temple priests and priestesses, which were really nothing other than temple prostitutes. Both male and female alike were there. And as a part of their practices, a lot of sexually immoral practices, both heterosexual and homosexual, took place within the city of Corinth itself. So if you wanted to be wild and carnal, if you wanted to indulge your sinful cravings, the place to go was Corinth. If you wanted to get lit up and experience drunkenness and wild entertainment and crazy activity, that was the place to go. In ancient culture, in fact, we know historically that they would even use the word a Corinthian or becoming Corinthianized. And whenever they said you're acting like a Corinthian, that was an inference you're either acting like a drunk or you're acting like a prostitute or a sexually immoral person. So keep in mind, it is to this very dark place 
this very immoral city with lots of temptation and perverse wild activity unrestrained behavior which paul now feels a burden to impact with the light of the gospel so he goes now to Corinth. verse 2 goes on to tell us that when he went there he found a certain jew named aquila who was born in pontius and had recently come from italy together with his wife priscilla The reason why, verse 2 says, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and Paul came to them and verse 3 says, so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation they were tent makers. So watch what happens here. As Paul obeys the Lord's leading, he goes next to the city of Corinth to do some ministry there. The Lord orchestrates some helpful connections both relationally as well as practically. That's what verses two and three tell us here. Through some set of circumstances, it says verse two there, Paul found or met up with this Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and it says in our text there, who had noticed recently come from Italy and had now arrived there in the city of Corinth themselves. And it just so happened that they also were trained in the same type of trade work occupationally that Paul himself had learned that is the occupation of tent making it tells us here that in verse 3 that they also were tent makers that they had that same trade skill now what's interesting is because they were both Jewish by heritage as well as had the business of tent making which was the same trade that Paul himself had become trained in and at times occupied himself for work this became a point of connection both relationally and practically for them that's why verse 3 says because they were of the same trade he stayed with them that is Paul lodged with them they gave him hospitality in their home they kind of had a sense of connection a a natural bond of friendship was easily formed and even a mutually beneficial partnership because he didn't just lodge with them it also says that he worked with them or perhaps worked for them to earn his keep and provide for his needs financially having just arrived there in Corinth somewhere along the way we're not certain could have been his youthful days or maybe later on Paul apparently learned the trade skill and developed experience to be a tent maker now when it says a tent maker there it's basically a reference to someone who had the trade skill of leather working or working with animal skins or furs to construct tents which were very commonly used in this ancient culture so paul puts to work his trade skills to assist this couple in their tent making business that they'd established there in that city and having this trade the same that they did uh, paul had learned this and had experience so basically they they gave paul a job Uh, They employed him to work with them or for him in their tent making business to earn some income for himself. They employed him uh, to work together in the tent making business, which is an interesting thing to see in the book of Acts here, because we notice as a God ordained missionary and a church planner, a, a traveling evangelist and pastor, we notice that at times Paul worked occupationally. Paul is a part of his ministry also at times spent time in practical work to generate money as was needed to supply for himself and those who were with him even in his team to responsibly take care of his own necessities in fact it appears from the new testament accounts that we have and acts and the new testament letters that are written that paul's method of operation 
was actually that whenever he would go into an area, he would never expect nor would he seek after for himself looking to obtain or receive money from those that he was ministering to or be supported financially that he never sought after that he never went into a community expecting it and certainly not demanding of it his view of ministry was that it was not a job or a career but it was a spiritual calling that he had obeyed and engaged in now that being said keeping things in balance biblically Paul at times would receive compensation for his ministry efforts and labors if the Lord orchestrated to provide that for him. If the Lord moved in such a way where it came upon the hearts of the people to initiate wanting to supply for him or to provide for his needs financially, he knew it was acceptable by God's design and scriptural to be supported financially for doing God's work among his people, even as in the Old Testament, the Levites and the priests were supplied through their work of ministry in the temple. And Paul writes about this principle in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, but he never sought after money. He never, when he went into a new community, burdened a new ministry, especially when church planning, when he'd enter a community to share Christ and establish a church. I think it was almost purposely intentional in order to be a good example to demonstrate that his motives were pure, that his heart was there to give and to serve, and, and that he wanted to do what he could to earn respect and seek not to be a burden on a brand new ministry, he would do work as necessary and utilize his own resources as much or as long as possible to responsibly supply for himself. And as a missionary, we see in our text here, he both maintained a job and also verse four says he was ministering simultaneously while working as a tent maker. And let me just say, uh, having had that experience a few different times, being involved in uh, three different church plants myself now, uh, I, I see a lot of value to this. I see great wisdom in this pattern of having that hard attitude and being sensitive to that, especially in the early days of a new ministry. In this particular instance, God even used it to work out these job-related affairs to establish, as we said, some God-ordained connections for even greater purposes. In fact, notice with me, if you would, the reason why this couple was actually there in Corinth when Paul arrived there. Verse 2 tells us they had recently come from Italy. The reason? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews, which they were, to depart from Rome. And that's why they then came to the city of Corinth. So look what happens here. Due to Jewish persecution by a civil leader, if you would, to push all of the Jewish people out of the area of Italy to force them to leave their current situation and seek refuge in another city as the result of some unplanned events in their life circumstances, as the result of dealing with some disappointments and, and some hardship, even difficult things, it forced them to make some adjustments in their lives. It caused them to have to accommodate to the unplanned circumstances and do what was necessary and even start over in a brand new community. But yet those life events and those circumstances that were happening to them, notice, actually become what drives them in a new direction. And as it drives them in a new direction, it actually causes them to find out where God was directing them to ultimately go. 
It's what leads them to the place of Corinth. God was actually superintending over all their life affairs. Even the unplanned events, even the hardships, even the difficult circumstances, God was superintending over all those affairs and even working through such to direct them, listen, into the next season for their lives. To bring them forward in the next step of what God had on his calendar for them, which would actually be in their best interest as well as it would coincide with to help assist and bring forth the plan of God. To me, this is very wonderful to see because through meeting Paul the Apostle, these two individuals, first of all, they come to know Jesus. That's not a bad deal. They also become close friends of Paul the Apostle. They become associates and actually we see in the New Testament ministry partners assisting him. We'll even see that later in the chapter. They become very fruitful servants for Christ who end up doing a lot of ministry for the kingdom of God, this couple. And I bring this to your attention because I want to say this morning, trust God, folks, with what he allows to unfold in your life. We can make good decisions. We can try and be good stewards. We can try and do all the right things and pray and obey the Lord. But at the end of the day, there are certain things that are going to happen that are completely outside of our control. We may, you know, go through a hardship. We may lose a job. We may face an illness. We may have something happen where things fall apart or something happens that kind of drives us in a different direction or some unplanned things come up in our affairs. But no, in all those things, God is superintending. And God's never lost control. Unlike us who when an unplanned event happens, we're kind of maybe shocked or trying to figure it out or we're worried or concerned. God's never going, whoa, I never saw that coming. Right? We do that because we're humans. God never is surprised by anything. The Bible says all of your days were written in his book before one ever came to be. God has the whole record already. So your dying breath or the moment you depart by Jesus rapturing you off of this planet into heaven. And in light of that, that's why it's good to stay close to God because he already knows what's on the next page. He already knows what the next chapter holds. And to understand and to have the encouragement that even unplanned events, hurtful experiences, difficult circumstances, they can all be useful to God and God can work through such to get you and I where we need to be. God can utilize what transpires in your life to actually be something to get us connected to right people to get you connected or maybe in the right place that he wants you to be in for the next season. Always remember, as you have to work through things, the Lord is working through those things. As you and I have to work through those things, the Lord is working through those things. And Aquila and Priscilla were sent to Corinth, you might say, before Paul, by God's providence. Because God plants them there in advance to set up a much-needed connection both for them and their personal lives and it also was mutual beneficial for Paul as well. And God may sometimes be positioning you where he wants you to be for someone else. And on the other side of that, sometimes we worry, oh, when I get, just like Paul, when you get to where you need to be, God will have position there who he needs for you. Especially remember that if you're still hunting for a spouse. Don't hunt. Trust God will have the right person in place as you stay on God's path and will cause all things to coordinate 
in his good time. Well, Paul first arrived there. Again, he's remember, he's still waiting for Silas and Timothy. And while he's there working as a tent maker, living with Aquila and Priscilla, verse 4 says that while he was there doing this, he also reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So as we've seen this custom before, whenever Paul would enter a city every Sabbath, again, that was the Saturday, he would go to the synagogue that was the place of worship of Yahweh God, whether Jews were together as well. At times, God-fearing Greeks would congregate for worship meetings where they offered prayers up to God, where they would read and listen to the scriptures from the Old Testament. Typically, a teaching or an exposition was shared. And knowing that they had a good basis of Old Testament reasoning in the synagogue, there being worshipers, Paul would utilize this as a platform when he would come into town, understanding, hey, these people already have a foundation. They have a basic understanding that who God is and that God promised and predicted to send a savior, to bring a Messiah to them one day. And he felt it was a good foundation to talk to people. And as a trained rabbi, he knew as well as a trained rabbi from Jerusalem, when he came into a new town, he would be given opportunity to share in the synagogue. So Paul would go to the synagogue and he would reason with them. It says from the scriptures, verse two, uh, verse four here says that he both reasoned and persuaded with those who were there. That is, he sought to show them from scripture the valid reasons that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Messiah that God predicted in the prophets that he was going to send. And so he would lay out for them as the light of God had been given to him through his own conversion, reasonable evidence of how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies, reasonable evidence and understanding of why it was necessary for Jesus to come the first time as a humble suffering servant and to die for our sins and then to raise from the dead and come back to life to be the ultimate savior for us, helping them to see why Jesus did what he did, appealing to their intellect, giving them clear reason to believe if they were willing to genuinely think it through. But he didn't just reason with them. Notice verse four says he also sought to persuade them to believe. So he laid out evidence and gave them reason, but he also said, but look, you have to do something with this. This is reasonable evidence. You need to respond. Jesus is asking you to trust him as the savior for your sins and to embrace him as the Lord over your life. And and look, our Christian faith rooted in the Holy Scriptures, it has very reasonable evidence to anyone who is willing to think. It really does. If someone is willing to genuinely think through spiritual realities We have reasonable evidence, and that's why we should reason with people in regards to their spiritual condition, what the Word of God says, sharing these reasons, why a person should seek forgiveness for their sins, that heaven is real, that hell is real, but yet we also have to respond, or as well, we also have to encourage people to respond. We have to persuade people. We want to present the reasons, but then we also want to say, but you have to do something with this. And we want to persuade people to respond to Jesus, to put their faith in him and make a personal decision to follow him as their Lord. Well, verse five tells us then when Silas and Timothy finally came and they had come from Macedonia, says Paul was then compelled by the spirit and testified to the Jews 
that Jesus is the Christ. So it appears from verse 5, as well as from some other supporting biblical accounts in the New Testament, the arrival of Silas and Timothy did two things. It both freed Paul up, and we'll talk about that in a moment, as well as greatly encouraged him. It emboldened or empowered him, and it freed him up to preach all the more boldly that Jesus indeed was the Christ or the Messiah that God sent to save his people. Their presence, Silas and Timothy, when they arrived, and companionship and friendship as Paul's ministry partners, it seems it just birthed fresh wind into his sails to just kind of carry onward and encouraged him to take his ministry to a whole new level of intensity. And this was due because they brought great spiritual encouragement and practical help to Paul as well. Now, keep in mind, if I can just refresh your memory, Paul at this point in time is under a heavy load. One, he's been through a lot in his missionary journeys. I mean, the wear and tear. This is his second missionary journey coming to a close now. Years of ministry, ministering on top of that under the heavy load for the recent season that he's been in now all alone. Because remember, he went to Athens and now he finds himself in the dark, sinful city of Corinth all alone. Silas and Timothy haven't joined him yet. And so he's ministering faithfully and doing what he can without helpers. And look, that's draining ministering alone is difficult it's draining and on top of that remember what paul's doing we're told here that he was working a job to maintain his financial need and on top of that then ministering simultaneously kind of doing both duly and likely paul is wearied physically he's drained emotionally His strength is kind of sapped in some ways. He's probably tapped out spiritually. So the arrival of practical help and support partners was a very timely blessing at this moment for Paul the Apostle. Again, we know from other accounts, for example, 1 Thessalonians 3, that when they arrived that Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 3 says, brought good news to Paul of how the church back in Thessalonica was doing. That would really bless Paul because Paul, remember, was driven out of Thessalonica rather quickly and he didn't get to do a lot of follow-up ministry with the people there. So when Timothy came, he said, Paul, I want to let you know the church in Thessalonica, it's doing great, man. Paul, your efforts there, it's going fantastic. Paul, the fruit of what you sowed, even in that short season, Paul, going fantastic. And I'm sure that really encouraged Paul. Great, my labor wasn't in vain there. On top of that, we know as well, Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11 tell us that Silas and Timothy also brought with them to Paul when they arrived a financial gift from the believers in the church of Philippi to help meet Paul's needs. And that financial support given by God's people allowed Paul to pull away from tent making, from working his job that he was, to become freed up to give his full attention and efforts to the ministry itself, to devote his full energy and time to ministering to the people and teaching God's word. In fact, other translations of verse 5 almost kind of capture that. For example, one translation says, when Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, it says Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, isn't this interesting? In the same Bible passage, Paul working in verses 2 and 3, in verse 5, 
uh, a financial gift comes, financial support for Paul as a minister, which frees him up to exclusively devote himself to ministry. Here, you have a biblical balance on the other side of ministry, where you find Paul being supported financially and empowered to be more effective in his work. And see, when someone receives financial support for the ministry they do, it gives them that opportunity. It frees the servant of God up to put their full time and energy and focus on ministry to the people. And it becomes a blessing and a benefit, not only to the one serving, but to those being served. Because the ministry becomes more thorough and more efficient. And we do find biblical precedent for this. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Do you not know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, drawing from that Old Testament concept, he says the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And how wonderful this transition here is. Silas and Timothy now come, encourage Paul, assist Paul. Fresh wind from his sails is blown in and he's compelled it says, by the Spirit of God. He's invigorated to preach Christ all the more boldly with new passion. But notice what happens as a result, verse 6. It says, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood is upon your own heads. I am clean, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. So as has been the pattern before, Soon after Paul's preaching for a season boldly about Christ, he soon has to face resistance from the Jewish people there in the synagogue that didn't want to hear his presentation of Jesus as Messiah. Verse 6 says, they both opposed him and blasphemed. The word opposed there means to, to strongly resist, to show a clear refusal and rejection. And the word blasphemed, it's a compound word, which basically means to speak harmfully or hurtfully it speaks of of communicating or saying things in a hurtful way against the lord jesus and who he is and what he was offering to them so they're opposing rejecting blaspheming and paul notice in verse six he honors their right to decide but he also informs them that they were responsible for their choice to reject you see what he says there it says what he did, first of all, it says he shook out his garments in a symbolic way. The idea was shaking off any attachment or connection to their refusal of Jesus. That's the idea. He's saying, look, I, I'm shaking myself free of this. I have no connection to this rejection that you're doing. I don't want any parts of your decision to refuse Jesus. He says then to them as well, verse 6, your blood is on your own heads. The idea is your guilt is completely your own to bear. I'm not accountable. The picture here of what he's doing comes from Ezekiel chapter 3 as well as chapter 33, the watchman. And a watchman on a city wall was responsible when he saw the attack coming or the enemy arriving on the horizon to speak as a watchman, to warn the people, to instruct them, listen, danger is coming. You need to respond properly. And if the watchman faithfully warned the people and they chose not to listen to what he conveyed to them, then their blood was upon their own heads for the guilt of rejection. If he did not warn the people and he did not faithfully tell them the truth of what was about to happen, then the blood of the guilt was on the watchman's head. Now, this was the 
picture here, the image spiritually for the spokesman of God. Our responsibility as people before God is to speak the truth, folks. That's our responsibility to our family members, to our friends, our co-workers, those that we interact with. Our responsibility is to tell people the truth that we know from God's word, that we've experienced from the Lord ourselves, to share the gospel, tell them what that means. And if we do that, we cannot control people's response. They're free moral agents. We cannot control whether they receive or reject what we share with them, and we're not even responsible for that. As long as we share the truth, that guilt and responsibility is not upon us for how they decide. It's actually their guilt to bear. And that's what Paul is saying here. So he says, look, verse six, I am clean. I'm clean of what you're choosing to do. And then he says, verse six, and from now on, he says, I will depart from here and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He wisely moves on to those who are willing to listen. And look what happens, verse 7. And he departed from there, from the synagogue, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was, underline that, next door, imagine that, to the synagogue. So Paul says, okay, if you don't want to hear the truth here, you don't want me to teach the Bible study here, he says, I'm going to look for another open door, and he finds a literal open door right next door to the synagogue. And he says, whoever wants to hear the Bible study, we're just going to move it right next door here. And this man, Justice, opens up his house and is willing to let Paul share there. And Paul, I like this, he does not stop sharing. He just looks for a new harvest field. He doesn't keep trying to beat the iron ground. No, they're going to listen. They are going to respond. He just moves to a willing group of individuals. He says, I've sown the truth. They haven't responded. And in faithfulness, he just keeps on speaking despite rejection, despite minimal response. And look, folks, we're going to see it pays off. It pays off. Because he just moves and continues to speak and be flexible, it pays great dividends. And when serving the Lord, I want to encourage you, we have to learn how to remain faithful. The Bible says it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. We have a stewardship from the Lord to serve on his behalf, to minister, to share the gospel, and we have to be faithful. You don't have to be talented. You just have to be faithful. Faithful. Think about it, really. That's all we bring to the table. I mean, what really do we bring to the table? I don't know about you. I know who I am. What do we really bring to the table? The word of God is God's. The Spirit of God does all the work and brings the fruit and the results. God orchestrates and does everything. He just lets us be utilized. But God says, I need you to at least be faithful, be available. Just present yourself to me and stay at it and and be committed to it. And he says, if you're willing to do that, I can work. The Lord here shows Paul being faithful and Paul had to work through the rejection. I'm sure it was difficult. Nobody likes being rejected. He had to work through the disappointment and minimal response at first. But because of that, the Lord worked through his faithfulness. And I tell you the truth, if we stay at it, the Lord in time can work through faithfulness. You just wear people out. You just keep showing up. You just keep sowing the seed and eventually one will take root. 
You just keep doing the right thing. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not microwave mentality. It's not drive-through ministry. It's continually sowing the seed, doing what you need to do, being faithful, praying, harvesting, and look what happens. It says, verse 8, in time, look at the major spiritual breakthrough. It says, then, as Paul kept going, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, many, it says, hearing, believed, and were baptized. You want to talk about not only a major spiritual breakthrough after some time, but how the Lord worked very strategically. Do you see verse 8, who the emphasis on the first person, perhaps really notable to get saved? (laughs) I find it here. The ruler of the synagogue. Get out of the synagogue. Stop this Jesus thing. And the first person who the Lord just breaks open their heart as his spirit works in a powerful way, he opens the heart of Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who personally believed on the Lord, it says, for salvation. And this man's decision to believe and follow Jesus himself then had great spiritual influence. God is so strategic, so strategic. It says that he believed, but not only him, but notice it says he believed on the Lord with all his household. So as the result of him choosing to follow Jesus, the Lord powerfully worked through his influence as a husband and as a father, and ultimately all his household became believers and followers of Jesus. And if that weren't enough beyond his family, the door swings wide open for the Spirit's ministry to really flourish because verse 8 says, and many of the Corinthians hearing then believed and were baptized, hearing that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, got saved, and listening then to what God's word said for themselves, as the result of that, the Holy Spirit started powerfully converting many people in the city, turning to Jesus and getting saved. And notice how they were saved. Verse 8 simply says, they heard and they believed. They heard the truth and they believed. No religious routines or efforts or achievements. They heard the truth. It finally resonated with them and they were saved by faith. They believed. They believed it for themselves, the claims of the gospel, the truths of salvation, and they were saved and their lives were changed and transformed through faith alone. And notice what happened after they were saved. We see the pattern often in the book of Acts. It says they believed, verse 8, and were baptized. That is, after they were saved, they then made a public proclamation of that inward spiritual experience that happened in their heart, demonstrating by being water baptized publicly in front of others to show their faith outwardly. Hey, we're doing this outwardly to show you what we believed inwardly that it's true for us, that we've responded to it, identifying openly with Jesus and what they personally believe. And that's exactly what happens in water baptism. We're identifying with Jesus as we, today, even in our baptism, as we put people under the water, it's a picture of a watery grave, of, of death, of burial, just like Jesus died for our sins and he was buried. And as they come back up out of the water, as we raise them back up, it's a picture, symbolically, of resurrection, As Jesus rose from the dead, and we believe if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. In a sense, we're saying, look, I'm choosing to, in a sense, die to that old life, and I believe Jesus died for my sins, and so together I I identify with Jesus and what he did for me, and I want to be dead to the old way I used to live my life, 
And I believe Christ has given me a new life now as his follower. And now I want to live for Jesus in the power of his resurrection. And I want to live to serve him the rest of my days. And Jesus commands us both to believe inwardly as well as be baptized outwardly. And I'll tell you something. One of the things among many I believe the Lord powerfully works through is water baptism. There is something about water baptism where it solidifies for the person being baptized that their faith in Christ, their salvation that happened inside of them internally when they received Jesus and it resonated for them and their decision to follow Jesus as Lord and it happened internally between them and God on the inside. When they stand there in those waters in front of people watching them, And they look halfway decent before we stick them under the water. (laughs) And then they let us dunk them under the water. And they come back up looking wet and a wreck. Something in their heart resonates. This is real. This is real. Because I just walked out here in front of all these people and I did this to declare on this earth before God and before my Savior and all these people... It's real. This is real. And there's something about it like putting a flag in the sand for your spiritual life. And I tell you, it has a powerful, powerful impact as well and testifies to those looking on as they think the exact same thing, especially if it's somebody who knows you and they watch you walk out there and they go, he's changed. I can't believe he just walked out there and did that. I can't believe she just did. And, and, And it testifies something very powerful. Because they realize you must be really into this Jesus thing if you'd go out there and do that. And it testifies something very powerful. And so baptism is a wonderful thing the Lord works through. Now, it appears things are going wonderful. People are believing. Families are getting saved. As a result of that, the whole community, many people are coming to Christ. Looks like the Lord's moving. Yet Paul knows that's often when things get bad, right? That's usually the point in Paul's ministry when he gets arrested, beaten, stoned, pushed, and dragged out of town, which is never pleasant. I think that's why verse 9 and 10 says what it does. Now, the Lord at this moment spoke to Paul in a night vision, saying to him, Paul, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city." So we can understand why Paul, as a human being, would be perhaps struggling a little bit with his thoughts and feelings, a little concerned. He usually knows what's coming down the pike and the spiritual warfare and the attacks against him personally. And it's at this point as he's dealing with worry and doubt and even a bit of discouragement, I believe as well, Jesus shows up in a personal revelation to Paul. And he says, Paul, I'm here for you. And I just came to talk to you for a few minutes. And he reveals himself in this personal experience with Paul, giving him some much-needed words of assurance and comfort and counsel, addressing what Paul's dealing with personally, addressing what's happening inside of his heart and mind, his struggles, concerned with his welfare and his future, and even worried and tempted to maybe kind of throw in the towel. And look what Jesus says to him. He says, Paul, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. The idea literally in language is no longer be fearful of what you keep worrying about. Specifically, what was that? Well, Paul was worried about getting attacked, literally. 
and hurt and beat up once again. And Paul, look, he was a faithful, determined guy, yes, but he was still a man. He wasn't a machine. Sometimes we have this wrong perception. We look at people who are you know, serving the Lord. We, that guy's like a machine. No, he's a human being who Jesus just works through. And Paul, just like others who serve the Lord, got fearful. He got tired. He, he, you know, he went through hardships. And he was afraid there in Corinth, of all places, thinking, Paul's probably thinking, man, if they beat me up in Thessalonica or Berea or Philippi, I can't imagine what the Corinthians will do to me in this city. I mean, he's, this is going to be horrible here. I mean, I'm going to get beat tremendously. And Jesus promises him, Paul, no one's going to attack you to hurt you. And he said, the reason why, do you see what he says? He says, for I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. Paul, my presence is with you. The awareness and assurance the Lord is with us makes all the difference. Paul was not alone. The Lord was with him and by his side. In fact, the Lord was on Paul's side. And whatever Paul faced or dealt with, Jesus was going to be his defense and protection and stand with him and take care of handling and resolving whatever arose. Jesus said, I'm with you, Paul. I'm with you. And I'll address whatever comes up. And the fear of suffering harm and hurt, as well as facing disappointment and rejection, the cumulative effect, it seems it was tempting Paul to actually want to stop speaking for the Lord to actually kind of give up teaching and ministering. Notice, because Jesus assures him, Paul, I'm with you, and then he commands him, knowing that he was no doubt discouraged and pondering throwing in the towel or maybe going quiet and giving up. He says, Paul, verse 9, do not be afraid, but speak and don't go silent. Don't stop, Paul. Don't quit. Don't stop sharing, he's saying. I'm here to help you, and therefore you must carry on. Paul, I'm commanding you to carry on because I'm with you. And so you can be faithful because I'm with, I'm with you. And he says, in fact, Paul, I have many people, he says, verse 10, in this city. That could mean many people that are still going to get saved, more, or it could mean many people that, Paul, when something comes up, I'll use them to take care of you. Just trust me, he's saying, Paul. I'm with you. I'm going to work through these things. The bottom line is the Lord wanted to work through Paul, but Paul had to work through his own fears. And he had to be willing to keep being faithful and trust the Lord and his promises. And we can see from these verses, again, that pays off tremendously. And the Lord comes through for him. Look, today, perhaps you are struggling, maybe in similar ways. Maybe you are going through something or you facing something that has you fearful. It's a common occurrence all throughout the Bible. We keep reading, don't be afraid. That's because things make us afraid. And maybe right now or recently you've been going through some things and it's causing fear and worry in you. Maybe the Lord's word to you is don't be afraid. I'm with you. I know you feel afraid, but you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be consumed by fear and anxiety and stress. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'm going to sustain you and nothing bad is going to happen to destroy you. I'm going to guide you. And maybe his command to you in light of that is, so therefore, you need to stay at it. You need to remain faithful. You need to keep doing what you've been doing and not give up or pull the plug or run away. Keep being faithful in what you're doing because I have plans ahead of you. 
And notice verse 11, it says, So therefore, in light of this encounter with Jesus, that always can change everything, Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. For this next season, instead of being driven right out of a city, Paul hunkers down and the Lord gives him the opportunity to settle down for a concentrated time period of ministry. For 18 months, he's there discipling them teaching them the word of God, sharing from the scriptures in this dark and sinful city where discipleship was greatly needed. Again, notice the focused effort of Paul's ministry. He continued to teach the word of God among them. That was the focus. That was the emphasis. The teaching of God's word, folks, is what produces healthy, spiritually mature believers. It's what grounds people in their spiritual lives. It's what brings about healthy followers of Jesus, stable followers of Jesus, fruitful followers of Jesus. It's teaching the word of God among people because that's what's profitable, 2 Timothy 3 says. That's why we maintain the emphasis that we do here as a church. And what's interesting is the Holy Spirit records in verses 12 through 17 a brief picture of, of how the Lord kept his promise to Paul. Remember, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let anyone attack you or harm you in this city. Keep being faithful. Paul keeps being faithful for the next year and a half, and the Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus kept his promise. Look what happens, verse 12. When Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, and they brought him to the judgment seat. He's been through this before. And they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So again, the Jews in their antagonism get upset with Paul and what he's preaching about Jesus. They take him down to the courts, to the local authorities, and they say, what this man is teaching violates the law. The way he's telling people to worship God is making him a dangerous criminal, and we have got to stop this man This is unacceptable. And verse 14 says, when Paul was about to open his mouth. Let me translate that. Paul was about to defend himself. He was about to defend himself. I got to watch out for my own interests, preserve myself. At that moment, Gallio spoke up, the proconsul, and said, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, real violations of the law, O Jews, There would be a reason why I would bear with you and listen to your complaint. But if it's a question of words and names of your own law, look into it yourselves, he says, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters. He says, I'm not interested in your religious disputes. I'm a civil leader. I'm not interested in your civil disputes. Look at verse your religious disputes. Look at verse 16. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So what happens? He silences the accusers and he shuts the whole thing down. And he sends them away and Paul's kept safe and not harmed. Verse 17 says, And then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. They needed a new one because the other one got saved. And they beat him. They beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio, the proconsul again, took no notice of these things. So in their anger, for whatever reason now, the Greeks start to physically abuse and beat severely this new synagogue ruler and Gallio completely disregards it again and dismisses the whole situation. Now, now pay attention here. 
Here are dangerous accusations. People are even being physically beaten publicly, and yet the Lord working through all those things, even orchestrating what's happening in the minds and the hearts of unsaved civil leaders, he orchestrates everything and does what? Keeps Paul totally safe. Paul never gets beat up. He never gets abused. He never gets attacked. He lets nothing harmful happen to Paul. Why? Because Jesus gave his word to Paul. He knew Paul needed a little break from getting beat up at least. And Jesus keeps his word. Jesus keeps his promises. He told Paul, you be faithful, don't be afraid. I'm going to work things out for you. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus will do the exact same in your life. You may need to work through some things that happen. But in the midst of that, The Lord is with you and he will work through those things and bring about what's best for you in the end. Amen?